Kamusta, this is your host Alicia, aka your favorite Asian. I hope everyone is having a happy Sunday or honestly whatever day you're listening to this episode. I hope it's a happy one. Before I get into this episode, I just want to say that if you have not listened to Olivia Rodrigo's new song Deja Vu, go listen. You know, I will always be supporting my Filipina queen even though she's literally like six years younger than me. I honestly think it's like a mix of indie and pop and if you know me personally, I am an indie music loving girl. If you were like me and listen to artists like Pat Passion Pit, Walk the Moon, Group Love, or Young the Giant in high school, then the type of melody in this song is, you know, similar vibes. So now that I'm done promoting this song, let's get into the episode. So today I am going to talk about a powerful woman, Asian American Rise founder, Amanda Wynn. So this month, April, is actually Sexual Assault Awareness Month, also known as SAAM. And I think it's important to talk about, you know, different policies that have been going on that have been made through Asian Americans. So, founded in 2016, RISE is a nonprofit organization which is aimed to protect the civil rights of sexual assault and rape survivors. Amanda explained that the organization was named RISE to remind us that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can rise up and change the world. She said, women's lives are often not valued with full human dignity. Because, for example, her, as an Asian American woman, she says we are subject to hypersexualization, which contributes to sexual violence, yellow fever, the objectification of Asian female bodies and the stereotype that Asian women are submissive is an example of this. Legislation that Amanda had helped draft was introduced to Congress in February 2016. The bill passed through the Senate in May 2016 and the House of Representatives in September 2016. The Sexual Assault Survivors Rights Act passed unanimously in both chambers of Congress, being the 21st bill in modern U.S. history to pass unanimously through Congress. It later signed into law in October 2016 by President Barack Obama. The new law protects, among other rights, the right to have the evidence of a rape kit preserved without charge for the duration of the statute of limitations. Now, Amanda and her team are working state by state to codify these rights at the state level and are actively working to bring a worldwide sexual assault survivors bill of rights. The reasoning behind her activism for this bill was because in 2013, Amanda was raped while she was in college in Massachusetts. Amanda chose not to press charges immediately since she did not feel like she had necessary time and resources to participate in a trial that could potentially last for years. Then, after police officers informed her there was a 15-year statute of limitations for rape in Massachusetts, she decided she would press charges at a later date when she was ready. She had a rape kit performed and discovered that if she did not report the crime to law enforcement, her rape kit would be destroyed after six months if an extension request was not filed. She was also not given official instructions instructions on how to file for an extension. Amanda considered the system to be broken partially because extension requests would be an unnecessary reminder of a traumatizing experience. Amanda met other survivors with similar stories and concluded that the current legal protections were insufficient. So before leading Rise full-time, she would squeeze it in before and after her day job, which was serving as a deputy White House liaison for U.S. Department of State. She's currently training to become an astronaut after encouragement from mentors who she interned with at NASA back in 2013. Amanda was in Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2017, was nominated for the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize, received the 24th Annual Heinz Award in Public Policy, Time 100 Next, and received the Nelson Mandela Changemaker Award. 
forward. Amanda is currently 29 and recently spoke with CNBC about her latest advocacy work around racial injustice for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders during the pandemic. If you do not feel like there's anything good that can be done through activism, this is a prime example of taking time to continuously fight and stand up for policies that are important, especially if there's some connection to it personally. In my social work grad program, we take policy classes where we inform our community and ourselves on different policies that are affecting vulnerable populations. So with the 87th legislation currently in session in Texas, forms of advocacy for policies can be through emailing or calling your legislators, even tagging your legislators from the House or Senate in your tweets about certain policies you like for them to support is a form of advocacy. If you follow me on Twitter, I was literally posting social work policies for a week straight to make sure my representatives saw what social workers want implemented into our society. So I hope through learning more about Amanda and her nonprofit Rise, you stand up and advocate for victims of sexual assault. This is the story of the case of Seth Gonzalez, aka the Babyface Killer. Seth Gonzalez was born on September 16, 1980 in the Philippines and was 21 years old at the time of the murders. After the 1990 earthquake, his parents, Teddy and Mary, immigrated to Australia with him and his younger sister, Claudine. Teddy began working as an immigration lawyer. So Seth Gonzalez felt like his life was controlled by his close-knit Filipino family and devout Catholic upbringing. The pent-up tension was starting to take its toll on him because just a few months before the murders, his family had threatened to disown him. He was also about to be expelled from his second attempt at a degree due to bad grades. Some observed that Seth would stretch the truth and outright lie to impress people because he imagined himself to be a successful businessman, model, and singer. Others have remarked that he had an essentially narcissistic personality and was a compulsive or pathological liar. However, to many people, the lies were believable because of his apparent sincerity. He also falsely told friends that he was suffering from cancer. So on July 10, 2001, in North Ride, New South Wales, Seth Gonzalez had gone home shortly before midnight after dinner with a friend. As he entered the front door of his suburban home, he found his father, Teddy, mother, Mary, and teenage sister, Claudine, in a pool of blood covered with multiple stab wounds. On the wall of the living room were the words, F off Asians, KKK, scrawled in spray paint. Seth dialed triple zero, crying into the phone, my family's been killed. Now from hearing that, it seemed like racism was the primary motive for the killings. He later told his neighbors that he tried unsuccessfully to resuscitate his family, but the authorities found this odd because he barely had any blood on him except some on the soles of his shoes and a few spots on his pants. Gonzalez also showed no signs of distress and never described how he felt to the authorities. He merely described how he had found the bodies and appeared strangely calm throughout the various police examinations. In the days following the murders, Gonzalez appeared on television asking for the killers to come forward, saying he wanted justice and offered a reward of $100,000. A few days after the murder, Gonzalez visited the family's accountant inquiring about his inheritance, which estimated to be about $1.5 million in Australia and $1.3 million in the Philippines. As an apparent victim of a crime, he was also eligible for $15,000 payout. Gonzalez then moved to an apartment in Chatswood and put a deposit on a $173,000 Lexus, telling the dealership he would be using his 
inheritance to pay for the vehicle. It was also claimed at trial that he traded in his parents' cars and pawned his mother's jewelry. Gonzalez also told relatives that he had a brain tumor and asked his godmother in the Philippines for $190,000 for the alleged surgery, but thankfully she did not give him any money. On July 20th at the combined family funeral, he also gave the eulogy and sang the Mariah Carey Boys to Men duet, One Sweet Day, which was really strange to all the family and friends. Reports also emerged that a neighbor had seen him on the night of the murders fleeing the house around 7 p.m. He told his dinner companion that he had been out all day driving around Blacktown searching for his friend's house, but little did he know that both his father's client as well as his aunt had seen his green Ford Fiesta in the driveway of his house earlier that day, ultimately destroying his alibi and arousing the suspicion of the authorities. So now let's discuss what really happened that night with Seth and his family. At about 4 p.m., Gonzalez left the family's law firm where he worked part-time and headed to the family home. Around 4.30 p.m., armed with a baseball bat from his car and with two kitchen knives from a knife block in the kitchen, he entered Claudine's bedroom and assaulted her while she was studying. There, he compressed her neck while trying to strangle her, struck her head with a bat at least six times, and then stabbed her multiple times with the smaller of the knives. The cause of Claudine's death was a combination of the compression of her neck, blunt force head injuries, and abdominal stab wounds. Gonzalez then waited until his mother, Mary, arrived home around 5.30 p.m. After entering the house, Gonzalez attacked her with one of the kitchen knives in the living dining room. Gonzalez inflicted multiple stab wounds and cuts to her face, neck, chest, and abdomen. Her windpipe was then completely transected post-mortem. At around 6 p.m., Gonzalez's maternal aunt visited the house. She noted her nephews and sisters' cars in the driveway, but the house was dark and unusually quiet, especially given that the family kept six small dogs inside. Looking into the house, she noticed movement and left with her son after deciding not to enter through the garage. Teddy then arrived home around 6.50 p.m. After entering the house, Gonzalez attacked him with one of the kitchen knives and inflicted multiple stab wounds to his neck, chest, back, and abdomen as well. One of the stab wounds penetrated his right lung, another penetrated his heart, and another partially severed his spinal cord. Teddy sustained defensive wounds, suggesting that there was a struggle. After killing his family, Gonzalez disposed of the murder weapons and the clothing and the size 7 running shoes he was wearing at the time of the murders. He showered, changed clothes, and then he was the one who sprayed the painted words F off Asians on the wall in the house in an attempt to fool investigating police into believing that his family had been the victims of a hate crime. Gonzalez then drove to a friend's house, arriving there around 8 p.m. The two then went to the Sydney CBD where they ate at Planet Hollywood and visited a nearby video game arcade. Later in the evening, after dropping his friend off, Gonzalez returned home. That is when he called emergency services at 11.48 p.m. to say he had discovered the bodies. So after his first alibi of his car was disproved, Gonzalez came up with the alibi of claiming he had visited a brothel at the time of the murders, but this was proven to be false by the person who claimed to be with him at that time. On June 13, 2002, after advancing two false alibis, police arrested Gonzalez and charged him with three counts of murder, holding him in Silverwater Correctional Center. He was denied access to his family's estate to fund his defense. The murder trial took place during April and May 2004. The trial had revealed that Gonzalez had planned the murders for several months before they took place. Initially, he intended to carry out an elaborate contamination hoax, searching the internet for poisonous plants. On May 20th, 2004, 
2004, the jury found Gonzalez guilty on three counts of murder. He was sentenced on September 17 to three life terms without parole, making him one of the youngest lifers in Australia. Gonzalez is now serving his terms at a maximum security inmate at Goulburn Correctional Center. The case, which has since become one of Australia's most notorious murder cases, may draw some comparison to California's Menendez brothers case. In June 2000, Gonzalez was granted approval to appeal his conviction and his sentence. The Supreme Court determined that statements taken from Gonzalez by the police on the night of the murder may be indismissible as he was not cautioned. But on November 27, 2007, Gonzalez's appeal was dismissed and his convictions remained. And with that, we honor Teddy, Mary, and Claudine. Follow me on Instagram at Your Favorite Asian Podcast and hit that follow button if you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any cases that you would like me to cover, please email me at Your Favorite Asian Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to show kindness and advocate for equality. Pa'alam, and I'll talk to you again next Sunday.